Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 54 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our interview today is with Robin Hobb, the best-selling author of many books, including the Farseer Trilogy, the Live Ship Traders Trilogy, and the Rain Wilds Trilogy. Her most recent novel is called City of Dragons. She also publishes fiction under the name Megan Lindholm, and recently released a book called The Inheritance and Other Stories, collecting short fiction published as both Megan Lindholm and Robin Hobb. Then stick around after the interview as we discuss the epic fantasy genre with guest geek Saladin Ahmed, author of the new novel Throne of the Crescent Moon. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Robin Hobb. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay, so you started out publishing fiction under the name Megan Lindholm, but your given name is actually Margaret. So how did you become a Megan? One of my first uh, professionally published stories was in an anthology called Amazons, of which uh, Jessica Amanda Samuelson was the editor. And prior to that, I had been publishing as M. Lindholm. And uh, when when it came time to put the anthology together, uh, Jessica said that she really wanted to use a full name on the stories as she felt that for many years, female writers had been forced to hide behind a single initial or a male name in order to get published. And uh, my response was that uh, the M was something that I used because I had I, I had no particular attachment to my given name of Margaret or Peggy or Maggie or Meg. And I said, well, Megan's not too bad, but um, I just, I just really, none of those names really resonate with me. So I've always just left it as M. Lindholm. Well, when the anthology came out and I opened my copy, I saw that my byline was now Megan Lindholm, as there had been uh, a misunderstanding, and, and Jessica had thought that that was the name that I was actually choosing as a first name for my pseudonym. Okay, and so you you know you recently released a book called The Inheritance and Other Stories, featuring short fiction from throughout your career, uh, as both Megan Lindholm and Robin Hobb. You know, many of those stories deal with characters living in poverty. Uh, why do you think that's such a recurring theme in your work? Um, well, I say write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will not claim to have lived in poverty. I have seen true poverty, and I know what it looks like. But I have certainly lived at the uh, lower level of income. And I would say that many of the characters in my stories do not live in true poverty. They are not out on the streets. They are not wondering if there will be anything to eat in the next week. They are people who are at the, the lower echelon of the economic strata. Why do the stories happen there? Well, um, uh, because they do. It's not as if I sat down and said, I am going to write a series of stories about people at the lower economic strata. It is simply that I get a story idea, and I say, where is this set, and who are these characters? And and that's how it comes out. I think if you look at, at the full strata, there are, there are people who are mostly working blue-collar, and sometimes in the, uh, the spectrum of fantasy, people who actually work every day for a living and have a tight budget can, can seem like they're poor, when actually, for most of us, that's a reality. Uh, so one of the stories in the book is about uh, gaining immortality by sticking roadkill in your mouth. Uh, How would you come up with that idea? If you read uh, a number of uh, uh, the older books about doing magic and, and what people believed you could magically do, there is supposed magic whereby if you take the correct bone of a cat and put it under your tongue, you can become invisible. From there, it was a short step to say, um, what if instead of that it simply conferred this wonderful, huge rush of uh, not necessarily immortality, but uh, re renewed youth and vigor, and you didn't need anything else except that. How would that, how would that work? Would, would you be willing to, to give up for that? Uh, would you actually be giving up anything? And that, that cross-reference with, with a, an idea that I've often had, which is, um, who does magic work for? In many of the stories that we read, there is somebody who, by dint of their their genetic heritage or because they are going to be the, the, the rightful king or whatever, magic descends upon them and they, they can do magic. And I thought, what what about the person who, who doesn't get that? When you take those two ideas and put them in a bag and shake them up 
then you get something like the the fifth squash cat. Uh, so your your short story cut is about a near future in which female circumcision becomes a fad among teenage girls. Uh, where did that idea come from? That was written a number of years back, and tattoos were uh, at that point becoming more and more popular. And uh, the issue of how old was uh, should a kid be before a kid is allowed to to walk into a tattoo parlor and say, "I want you know six piercings in my ear, or I want my belly button pierced, or I want." any kind of a tattoo. At what point is a person old enough to say, I own my body and I get to do what I want with it? And the flip side of that is, um, at what point does, does a parent's decision of what to do with their child's body become valid? You know, male circumcision is still very commonly practiced in the U.S., and yet we throw up our hands in horror when we talk about female circumcision or genital mutilation. And yet I'm sure that the parents who commonly practice this on their children are doing it with the same attitude that we see in, in male circumcision or in having a child's teeth straightened or whatever. There's there's this whole hazy area of who owns the body and at what point does that ownership of a body kick in. So it's not an area in which I have any answers. I just have a tremendous number of questions. And when I have a question about something, one of the things I do is I sit down and, and I, I, I I toss the, the question up in the air with some other factors, and, and usually what comes out is, is a short story. Uh, so how did you first start writing under the name Robin Hobb? Fantasy encompasses a wide, wide spectrum of writing. We have beast fable. We have gothics. We have tales of, of vampires and werewolves, and we have sword and sorcery, and we have epics from, from Homer, and we have uh, just, there is so much out there that we put under the umbrella of fantasy. And there are readers who choose very selectively within that huge umbrella. Some people only want to read ghost stories, or they only want to read a, a romantic fantasy, or a time travel fantasy, or, or, or swords and sorcery. So when you're, you're a fantasy writer and you've been writing, as I did, as Megan Mendholm, all the way across the spectrum of fantasy, um, uh, as my, my first agent, Patrick Delahunt, observes, he says, it's like you're writing your first novel every year, simply because uh, I would dabble in one area and then the next book I put out would be in another slash of the fantasy genre. So I, wasn't, uh, I was not building a, follow, a following of readers, necessarily except those who are adventurous enough to say, well, I liked your last book, so I will take a chance on where you're going now. So when I submitted uh, the uh, the Farseer trilogy, or the Assassin's Apprentice, it's fairly obvious that that was in a different slice of the fantasy genre than I had ever written in before. And so we decided that we would um, set it apart from my other work and kind of brand it so that people who were looking for that kind of a story from me would know where to find it. I had a lot of fun choosing the name, choosing one that would fit nicely on the book cover. And I went into bookstores and I uh, checked out what was uh, what shelf was at eye level in most bookstores, and it proved to be the H shelf. And I was looking at who was on the would be on the H shelf with me, and it was Heinlein and Herbert and Hambly and all sorts of uh, writers who would would pull people to come and look at that shelf. So I said, okay, I, I want a surname that starts with H, and I want it to be short enough to fit on the cover. And then uh, I deliberately chose Robin as an androgynous name uh, because some there are still readers who will, you know, if you're writing first-person male, they expect the book to be written by a male. And uh, so I drew, chose a fairly androgynous name. It gave me lots of room for the reader to uh, uh, step over that threshold of disbelief and start reading. Okay, and you know, as, as Robin Hobb, you've written a number of fantasy books now. Could you just sort of give us a rough idea of how those series fit together and in what order people should read them? In the, in the realm of the Elderlings, I've written very chronologically. It's, it's with the passing of time. So if you want to read the stories in chronological order and get all of the, the references to one another, you would start with the, uh, the Farseer trilogy, which is Assassin's Apprentice, Royal Assassin, and Assassin's Quest. Then you would move on to the Live Ship Traders trilogy, because although there is no uh, direct and obvious continuation of characters from the Farseer to Live Ship Traders, the events that happen in Farseer directly affect what's happening down in Bingtown, 
And, of course, after you have read the Life Ship Traders trilogy and you return to the Fitz and Fool uh, stories in uh, the Tawny Man trilogy, you will find that what has been happening in Bingtown definitely affects what happens up in the six duchies, which is, is very true as our world, of our world as well. After the Tawny Man trilogy, I took a, a brief sidestep into a different world and I wrote the Soldier Sun trilogy, which has no, no relation at all to the realm of the Elder Rings. It's kind of a gunpowder fantasy. And then I have returned to that world with, uh, the Rainwild Chronicles. They continue events and they pick up the life tre- threads of a few characters from the, uh, the ship's, uh, trilogy. But it's also talking about what happens with the, uh, with the serpents and uh, and the dragons. So we have a listener on uh, Twitter named uh, Mundane Name who who wanted us to ask how many people recognize that the map of the six duchies is Alaska and what's the background behind that. People people talk to me about you know if that's a map of Alaska, it shares a lot of features with it. Uh, if you if you uh, somebody pointed out if you turn it upside down, there are a lot of shared features. But basically, it, again, it's a question of write what you know. I wanted a long string of islands that went out into the sea, similar to the panhandle of Alaska. There's a lot of things that, that come from my real life into my written work, such as uh, the seismic activity and lahars and uh, tidal waves <laughs> and uh, uh, the kind of geography, the, the geography of the six duchies and the, the, the rocks and things that are there are very similar to Kodiak Island. Essentially, I sent off a, uh, a scratched-out map, because I'm, I'm by no means artistic, to both of the publishers in the U.K. and the U.S. That is why the maps are actually different in the U.K. editions from the U.S. editions, as the publishers immediately recognize my lack of talent in the map in the map drawing area, and they actually commissioned maps. So if you look at the two maps, they don't exactly match. And things I had sketched in such as um, the ice shelves that cover land to the far north and the sea that's there are interpreted slightly differently in both of those. So um, the resemblance to Alaska actually became greater in the final product than when I was uh, sketching out the panhandle and uh, of islands that I wanted and things like that. You know, there's a, a science fiction author, David Marasek, and I was always really struck that I, I heard that when he wanted when he wanted to write his first novel, that he moved to the shack in Alaska because I guess the government pays you to live there and it's really cheap. I was just wondering, do you think that that's a good strategy for for novelists to to all move to Alaska? I would say that paying you to live there is a a wild exaggeration. There is a a kickback from the oil pipeline money, which um, my relatives who have remained in Alaska uh, do receive. They get a a pipeline bonus every year. And, of course, there is no... um, uh, income tax up there, but uh, for all of that, there is still, you know, there are taxes to pay and other expenses. What you may save in uh, in taxes, you're going to uh, expend buying uh, the correct gear to live in Alaska if you actually are living in a in a very rural area. So you're going to uh, need to layer up, <laughs> <laughs> and what you're going to uh, uh, spend on uh, buying a uh, an orange or a banana or uh, fuel oil, is um, you're, you're still going to experience a lot of expenses there. So it, it's rather like people who talk about how Anne McCaffrey moved off to Ireland. There's probably benefits. There's probably uh, drawbacks. I would say if you want uh, isolation, if you want to get away from the Internet, if you want to uh, uh, have peace and quiet, or if you want to experience... Um, some of the skills that are actually necessary in a, in a more, uh, I don't want to say primitive, but a more self-reliant location, certainly Alaska would be uh, a good choice. The fact that I grew up in a family where we, we hunted and fished a lot for food, and we had a huge garden, and we had to put that uh, food up for the winter, and we had to deal with the kind of day-to-day um, thoughts about survival in, in deep cold. You didn't run out in your shorts and t-shirt and flippies and hop into a car and say, I'm just going a few miles to a friend's house because that could be a life or death decision if you got uh, if you stood off the road or uh, something like that. 
Uh, so actually, uh, you know, given given your uh, upbringing in that uh, sort of situation, uh, like, so what was your first exposure to uh, science fiction and fantasy uh, literature? Like, uh, how did you first get uh, interested in the genre? I think it's very hard to draw a hard and fast line and say Grimm's fairy tales doesn't count as science fiction or fantasy. Or um, at what point do we say uh, mythology is not fantasy? So reading mythology when you're young does not count as an exposure to fantasy. Uh, and of course, I, I grew up reading fairy tales, beast fable, you know, Aesop's fables and the Jungle Book and and uh, a lot of uh, my father's old fairy tale books. My mom would sometimes bring home from the secondhand store. She would bring home the digest-sized magazines at the times, you know, fantastic and amazing and analog and horror. Oh, I had a lot of exposure to uh, writers like uh, Robert Bloch, for instance. When I was a teenager, I absolutely loved horror and the Twilight Zone and, and things like this. And uh, that was where I definitely felt at home as a reader and as a writer. Okay, so, you know, your Live Ship Traders series you mentioned is about these sailing vessels with magical figureheads that think and talk. Uh, what was it about the idea of living ships that made you want to write about them? My husband is a third-generation maritime, and both of my sons have followed him more or less into that trade. I would often uh, have the opportunity to go up and spend time on whatever ship he was working on. During the summer, I would take uh, sometimes a younger child or two with me, and we would go up and, and spend some time on on uh, like a salmon tender or a herring tender, and uh, and be on the ship. What struck me about his experiences, all the way back to when he was a boy, because he grew up on fishing vessels, was that every one of the ships that he lived on or sailed on had their own uh, personalities that seemed independent of who was crewing them. There are some ships where nothing just ever seemed to go wrong, and other ships that, you know, where everything seemed to go wrong. I remember uh, dropping him off. Uh, he was taking a tug uh, across from Seattle to Hawaii. And we got on it, and it was like very restless at the docks. And the captain, Captain Jack, said to me, one thing I want you to know about this boat is she rides really rough, but she always knows which way is up, which means, you know, she's not going to roll. She's not going to turn turtle. And so that was his way of reassuring me that, that I would see my husband again. <laughs> so, uh, but the fact that he would say that about the boat meant that he felt that, you know, the boat knew which way was up. And there are other, other boats that, um, you know, if you talk to the local fishermen, they say, no, I, I don't, that's a bad luck boat. I don't sail on that boat. Things just go wrong on there. So to step from that to the idea that the ship is alive and has its own personality and has a living speaking figurehead it is a very it's a very small step okay uh so you say in your author notes that uh your husband doesn't read your fiction uh could you tell us a bit about that what i discovered with my husband reading my uh my stories is that he sees right through me writers always think that we're we're writing at a distance from ourselves and actually we're all out there walking around in our underwear and people hmm. know much more about writers than we realize. They know what our fascinations are. They know what themes we come back to over and over. They see a character type who crops up over and over, and they say, okay, I, I know something about you. This uh, absent mother or this uh, uh, cruel, heartless cousin, there's something in there in your life that, that mirrors that, which may or may not be true. A lot of times it's not true. That's simply a fascination we have with that story element. But when when uh, Fred would read a story, or especially if it was a work in progress, he would say, oh, oh, is is that character modeled on, on so-and-so? And half the time he would take something which I was not consciously aware of and bring it, boom, right out into the open. And when that happens, it really... Uh, for me, it was a total of, oh, I can't, I was about to have that character encounter a very messy death, and now that I know that it's modeled on our dear friend, you know, who's it, that's going to be really uncomfortable for me to write. I don't think I can write that story the way I was thinking about it. So, um, one day, you know, we, we were talking about it and laughing about it, and Fred said, well, I just, I just won't read him anymore. It's okay. And I thought, that might actually be the best. He, he's not a, 
for the most part, Fred is not a, a fiction reader. He likes to read um, nonfiction related to his trade. He likes to read uh, adventure that is actually based on an actual thing that happened. For instance, The Long Walk is one of his, his favorite books, or uh, The Life of Jugar O'Connell, or um, a book called Super Tanker that talks about the latest uh, technology and advances in, in uh, tankers. So for him to read my my uh, work had actually been more or less as, um, well, what are you doing favor kind of thing, rather than I'm deeply interested in fantasy and science fiction. So it was uh, um, no no sacrifice for him, and it, it freed me up to to write without uh, having a, a critic within the walls, and uh, or a reviewer, I should say, within the walls, and it just worked very well for us. So in an interview, I heard you say that growing up, you had a cat named John the Baptist. Uh, what's the story with that? Oh, um, we lived in Berkeley at the time, and um, we had a, a kitten, and um, my brothers and sisters, we all went to Catholic school. I was I was preschool at the time, so I wasn't there, but they were coming up with a name for the cat, and they decided to name the cat John the Baptist. We've, we've had a lot of cats with peculiar names from uh, dressing salad, not salad dressing, but dressing salad, to uh, John the Baptist, to Stupid, um, to Kamir, uh, which was because the cat would not respond to its name, so it just became, hey, Kamir. But I, I do recall my mother standing on the back porch in Berkeley calling, here, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, <laughs> and the neighbors uh, very much enjoying that. <laughs> okay, and finally, uh, are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Oh, let's see. I just uh, sent out the galleys, galley corrections this morning on a short story for Asimov that's called Old Paint. That's a Megan Lindholm story. Uh, I am working through coming up with a final draft on a uh, uh, a Robin Hobb shorter work, which doesn't mean by much, but it's, it's a shorter work, which will be the the Woeful Princess and the Piebald Prince, which is, comes from the uh, it's, it's actually stepping back in time in the six duchies, and again, it will kind of shine a spotlight on uh, something that happened back then, which uh, really was triggered events that were set in motion in, in the, the Assassin's Apprentice story. And then, of course, there is still the fourth book in the Rainwilds Chronicles. So uh, th those are all the, the things I've got coming my way and going on here right now. Okay, so John, was there any, did you have any... Uh... Closing comments um, or anything? I don't think so. I mean, you know, it just occurred to me since that we were going to be talking about epic fantasy. We're basically the second half of the show. Um, we're going to talk about like you know what other epic fantasies uh, besides you know like Robin Hobb and 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 maybe the obvious George R. R. Martin like are are things that people should check out. Uh, um, I mean, do you have any particularly favorite epic epic fantasies? Oh, I I will enjoy? throw Joe Abercrombie's name in the hat there. You know, I'm I'm currently reading his book uh, Heroes. And, uh, wow, I think he, you know, he's definitely, in, in his string of books, he is definitely uh, taking, attacking Epic on the very small and personal scale, which I like. I have read Prince of Thorns, and whoa, that is a, uh, that's a strange and wonderful ride that, you know, I started into Prince of Thorns going, why on earth did my editor send me this? Mm -hmm. This is hard and this is dark and this is oh my gosh this is disgusting this is a horrible character and then of course you turn the page mm -hmm. <laughs> so i'm looking forward to to his next book and i think that that he is definitely a writer to watch um mark lawrence there you go oh i'll, I'll talk in one more richard morgan the steel remains now that one was one that was i really enjoyed oh and brandon sanderson's mistborn um, okay, see, I, I could keep you here all day reading, <laughs> but I, I think I'll stop with those. <laughs> all right, well, Robin Hobb, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you very much, then, and I will catch you later. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, thanks again. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Robin Hobb for joining us on the show. And now we'll be discussing the epic fantasy genre, and we're joined by a special guest geek, Saladin Ahmed. His short stories have been nominated for the Nebula and Campbell Awards, and have appeared in the year's best fantasy. His first novel, Throne of the Crescent Moon, is out now. So, Saladin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Okay, and so I think we're going to start out and talk about just sort of what is epic fantasy and what makes it different from other sorts of fantasy. How is it different from sword and sorcery or high fantasy and things like that? And it just it does just just sort of seem to me that when people say epic fantasy, they mean stuff kind of like Lord of the Rings, and when they say sword and sorcery, they mean stuff kind of like Conan the Barbarian. So like Lord of the Rings is clearly epic fantasy, and Conan the Barbarian is clearly sword and sorcery, and just about everything else it seems to me is sort of an edge case uh, or somewhere in between. Well, I, I, I mean, I definitely think that that's the classic split that people make or the distinction that people make is uh, Tolkien versus Howard. I, I think, though, that, you know, people do that in a kind of, even with those two writers, there's a, you know, some of the stakes in some of the Conan stories, uh, I think, uh, are are epic. I mean, he's it's not always uh, simply about his individual fortunes. It is, but he's the kind of figure that, you know, uh, what is the quote about, you know, treading jeweled thrones and sandaled feet or something like that. Um, you know, his the implications of his actions are great in scale. And so, yes, in tone, you know, that's sword and sorcery, but, uh, you know, and, and he's not always self-serving. People make this distinction between epic fantasy and sword and sorcery. Sword and sorcery heroes are self-serving and epic fantasy heroes are, are like Aragorn. And, uh, you know, uh, Conan acts heroically sometimes and even selflessly sometimes. And if you turn around and look at, say, not Lord of the Rings so much, but say The Hobbit, you know, uh, that, that's, uh, that's a kind of picaresque adventure novel. It's really not about, you know, the, the larger war in Middle-earth. It's about, you know, Bilbo and his adventures fighting a bunch of different kinds of monsters and things and encountering different kinds of characters. And, you know, so there's, there's this kind of sword and sorcery energy there, too. I think that the, the figure that always comes to mind to me that sometimes gets left out of this discussion, though, is the, the guy who coined the phrase sword and sorcery, which is uh, Fritz, Fritz Weiber. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, when Dave was uh, mentioning Conan, I, I was actually, before he said that, I was actually thinking Fofford and Grey Mouser. And, and obviously, uh, Robert E. Howard was first, but uh, it seems to me like Fritz Leiber sort of uh, uh, perfected the sword and sorcery uh, story. But yeah, I mean, uh, what you guys are saying, I, I agree with mostly. I mean, is like, I think, like, when you sort of started off saying epic, epic and high fantasy and stuff. And it's like, I think, I think epic and high fantasy are just, you know, those are synonyms as far as I'm concerned. And basically, it, it was all called high fantasy. And then they started calling it epic fantasy, probably because high fantasy sounds boring, but epic <laughs> fantasy sounds awesome. It's like epic fantasy. Yeah, oh, well, I want to yeah. read that. You know, um, <laughs> the books and, were getting longer too. Which yeah. hurt, right? right, right. So now they're all epic length as well as uh, about <laughs> epic events. And yeah, I think definitely there's a lot of crossover, especially now. Um, I mean, because certainly in the Martin books, for instance, there's a lot of crossover with sword and sorcery, uh, in certain aspects of it. Um, and, uh, and, and also in, in sword and sorcery, there's, uh, obviously some of the, some of the stories are, are much more personal and, and like Saladin was saying, you know, sort of about the characters' personal fortunes versus, um, when they get embroiled in something, uh, larger. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of crossover. And I think probably if you look through any long running sword and sorcery series, you're going to find a few stories here and there or a few adventures here and there that are epic instead of just sword and sorcery. You know, to some extent, uh, I kind of wonder if there's any point in making that distinction. Although I, I'm sort of being forced to because I'm, I'm actually editing this anthology of epic fantasy, uh, which will be called Epic. Um, it'll be out from Tachyon this fall. And uh, the thing is, Tachyon is also doing a sword and sorcery volume <laughs> that uh, David Hartwell edited. So uh, because they're specifically drawing this line, you know, I'm being forced to make this distinction. And I mean, it's been interesting sure. um, doing the research to to see like, well, what what is epic and what is versus what is sword and sorcery? Well, it's definitely something I'm I'm thinking about, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm not going to get too into too into my own books. But uh, uh, the 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 first book is under 300 pages, you know, and uh, it's. It's about low-born characters, which is, I think, another important distinction in some ways. So, you know, these are class distinctions, too. Almost always in epic fantasy, we've got royalty and the aristocracy as the heroes. And certain sorcery, we often have low-born characters. You know, the, the tone's a little more certain sorcery in, in, in my novel. But then there is, a you know, a battle for the throne. There is multiple POVs. Um, and, and so... I think this thing that, that I've written is a kind of hybrid, and I definitely had to think about how these are marketing categories. You know, I mean, like, 
in things as basic as the, the cover blurb or, you know, how you describe the book on Amazon or when you're doing an interview, how do you talk about the book? Is it sword and sorcery? Is it epic fantasy? So the fact that these are artificial categories uh, sometimes it doesn't help to point that out because they still have to be addressed, you know? Um, I think a, a good recent example of this is Scott Lynch's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, you know, people talk about him as, oh, the hot new epic fantasist. And, you know, he writes these 800-page, you know, books that are doorstoppers and uh, have, you know, very uh, meticulously constructed kind of secondary world. So on the one hand, I see why people say that. But those are totally sword and sorcery books in terms of the tone, in terms of the stakes of the conflicts, in terms of the characters. Well, you know, Saladin, you, you mentioned, you know, your, some of your early favorites, and that was something I wanted to talk about. So maybe could you talk a little bit more about, like, what were some of, the, some of your, you know, say when you were a teenager or a little bit younger, some of the epic fantasy books you were really into? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, I did read Tolkien, although I didn't read uh, Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit very young. I didn't read Lord of the Rings until later in my teens when I'd already read, uh, I guess, a lot of Tolkien's imitators. Um, uh, I never went too deep down the path of, uh, kind of the people who are most regarded as, I guess, as, as, as real imitators, uh, sometimes derisively, you know, like, uh, Terry Brooks, I never really read more than the first book, David Eddings. Um, but, uh, the, the two series that I was probably most embroiled in that I read over and over and over again, uh, were first the, uh, the first Dragonlance trilogy. And uh, uh, second, um, first few Robert Jordan books. So yeah, I mean, I certainly I also you know the, the Hobbit would be big for me in Dragonlance. Uh, you know, Robert Asprin's Myth Adventures, I mentioned a lot on the show, was was my favorite series when I was uh, sort of in elementary school age. Um, I knew those uh, through through Phil Foglio did a comic book version of those actually uh, hmm. published by I think Warp Comics back in the eighties, and uh, that's the only way I knew the, the Asprin novels actually. Like you guys, I read a bunch of the D&D books, um, although I didn't actually um, start with the Dragonlance books. Or, I mean, I, I at least read the first one, but I, I mostly got into some of the other stuff. Like um, there was a couple – there was like the Birthright uh, novels that I really got into because I really dug the world. And, um, you know, I read some of them in Forgotten Realms books, and I read some of the other sort of miscellaneous world books. Like there was there was one like in Mistara when they were sort of launching that one that I really liked. And, um, you know, I read a bunch of stuff like that. And, of course, I read The Hobbit and um, – uh, I also read the myth, the myth adventure books, and uh, uh, actually, Piers Anthony was big for me. I mean, I don't know if those quite count as epic fantasy, but you know, uh, the Z- the Xanth books. Uh, I mean, those are basically uh, sort of humorous uh, YA-ish uh, epic fantasy. I mean, and, and because right. you know, there's always some epic quest going on in there, and I mean, they're full of puns and stuff like that. Uh, half of which I'm sure I didn't understand, but um, but I mean, yeah, I I sort of lived on those uh, when I was a kid. Um, but it was actually, it was a Roger Zelazny's Amber series was the big one for me when I was sort of high school mm-hmm. age and then Game of Thrones when I was a little bit older. And then, uh, Gene Wolfe's book of the new son were mm-hmm. sort of the big ones kind of in my early twenties to mid twenties. Um, and, but- you know, I, I should, I should throw a shout out too to Robert Jordan as well. I mean, um, I sort of, I sort of read the first six or I read the first five sort of, um, just on peer pressure, like I, I, I got peer pressured into reading the first one, and, and I liked it well enough, and I, I think I liked the first three or so, and then by book four, I sort of started to um, lose interest in it somewhat, and and I and so I sort of read read books four and five grudgingly, and then at book six, I just sort of gave up because I was like, you know, I'm not really enjoying this that much, and I can read like three books in the time <laughs> it takes me to read one of these, so um, you know, I, I sort of gave up, and uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of interested to find out how it gets all wrapped up, but I mean, honestly, it would take so long to read them all. I don't know that I would ever get around to it. Yeah, that's pretty similar to my trajectory. I mean, I've heard pretty good things actually about um, Brandon Sanderson kind of reinvigorating mm-hmm. the books. Um, so maybe someday I will go back and kind of go through the whole slog again. But the funny thing is, I read probably the first three of those books certainly, and um, maybe the first four or five. I mean, I read multiple times. You know, so uh, I and, and and I could still go back and read those first few books. In fact, I would like to fairly soon because uh, I think I think they're just fantastic and and uh, you know people flag on jordan a lot but i think he really did bring some new things to epic fantasy he brought his experience as a vietnam vet came through in his depictions of combat in a way that you know tolkien was writing as a kind of uh 
observer of war and uh, someone who had lost friends to war, but I don't think, you know, his action was still so idealized, you know? And uh, uh, Jordan, those books, the way he writes combat is just amazing. And the way he writes cultural interaction is just, uh, is just fascinating. And people just really, I think especially people who never read those books, uh, just dump on them as a kind of stand-in for everything they think is bad about epic fantasy. Well, yeah, when I did, you know, I did Orson Scott Card's uh, Writer's Boot Camp, and he said something that really struck me is he said, you know, say what you will about Wheel of Time, but this is a new thing in, in writing. You know, no one in history has ever tried to write sustained prose narrative at this length, you know, as Wheel of Time, Song of Ice and Fire, Dark Tower. I mean, this is this is a really ambitious new thing that people are trying to do. I mean, so, so Saladin, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, we sort of tend to think of epic fantasy like Lord of the Rings as being sort of a little bit formal and sanitized and idealized. And that, that makes it kind of hard to think of modern examples because fewer and fewer books are being written in that mode. I mean, do you think that that just sort of what epic fantasy is, is just changing and that, you know, those sort of Tolkien-esque qualities are just kind of vanishing from the genre? I run essentially a, uh, a freelance uh, novel critique service. And uh, so I see, you know, uh, aspiring writers, uh, what they are working on, and, and, you know, it's not like tons of data points, so I'm not trying to, you know, make a huge pronouncement about trends, but, you know, you do see certain patterns. And uh, I think some of that stuff's still out there. I think that mainstream publishing is less interested in it. Um, critics will savage it. And uh, a kind of readership that's been cultivated around Martin and Lynch and uh, um, some others, I think, uh, uh, Abercrombie, um, will, will, won't accept it. Uh, I don't think it's uh, totally, um, you know, uh, extinct. Uh, I think that if you look at a lot of self-published uh, epic fantasy, uh, really uh, is is highly derivative of Tolkien, um, you know, some of the good, some of the bad, um, and uh, that that kind of interest in, in a kind of moral purity that, that Tolkien had, or thought he had, uh, is, I think, present in, uh, in still a lot of people's minds, readers and writers, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the center of the publishing industry, because I think, I think writers like Martin have kind of uh, exploded that, and Again, uh, to give credit where it's due, I'd absolutely posit Jordan as the figure, the transition figure there. I mean, he's, he's totally the in-between uh, uh, of Martin and and Tolkien. I mean, I, I love Song of Ice and Fire to death, but uh, I think it does get credit for being having invented something whole cloth that uh, that other people were were um, you know providing some grounding for. And I think Jordan is one of them. Um, his quest, moral ambiguity. You know, there is absolute good and evil in Jordan, but there is also, uh, there are a lot of figures who are gray in a way that Tolkien didn't have. And, uh, I think, but yeah, I think that shift's been somewhat permanently made. Uh, there are writers out there who have a certain kind of, even in, in some of the grittier stuff, still have a kind of innocence to their work. I think Rothfuss is one, you know? Uh, I think that first novel is, it feels like a grown-up version of the kind of 80s fantasy, buildings, roman fantasy. And uh, I think Blake Charlton is another writer. Uh, his book got a lot of attention when it first came out. Um, Spellwright, I think it's another book that uh, pays tribute to that kind of uh, uh, wide-eyed 80s uh, writing. But, you know, I think the other thing is that when you go back and look at that stuff, it's not quite as... Um, even in Tolkien and, and his many imitators, I think, again, there's always maybe a little more nuance than, than this kind of caricature that we have of them. And, and I mean, speaking of transitions between, say, to Jordan and, and Martin, I think you would have to put Ted Williams' um, Memory, Sorrow, Thorn. I was going to say that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's other sort of writers that would have to be acknowledged, uh, sort, of, sort of keeping uh, the idea of epic fantasy alive that, you know, people like Martin sort of built are, are sort of standing on their shoulders, uh, or at least, you know, at the start, where um, but, you know, there's like, you know, I mean, Terry Brooks obviously was 
you know, back in the seventies, I think it was like 79 or something when sort of genre came out. And, um, you know, that certainly was a, a template for what became the epic fantasy genre. I mean, cause like really prior to that, I don't think anybody was doing, um, anything, yeah. but, you know, like Tolkien was doing, you know, had done yeah. Lord of the Rings, but nobody really had done anything like that. And so Terry Brooks is sort of the father of the whole genre. Um, yeah, and, commercially, definitely. That's true. Yeah. 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 And then, um, and then also, uh, Stephen, Stephen R. Donaldson is uh, another early one, um, with uh, the Thomas uh, Covenant books. I mean, those were very early on and, and, and very successful. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not sure of the timeline, like, you know, how contemporaneous they were with Brooks or if, uh, they came after or, or whatnot. But, uh, I mean, certainly an early practitioner, um, that was important to the genre to, you know, to, to, to get it to the state where it is today. Yeah. Well, you know, we're also having a pretty American-centric conversation mm -hmm. because uh, Michael Moorcock hasn't come up, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, he's classically, I guess, regarded as sword and sorcery. But uh, I think Elric, uh, Hawkmoon, I think some of uh, some of his stuff is uh, – the, the books might be 150 pages long, but I still <laughs> think mm -hmm. that uh, some of that's epic fantasy. And more to the point, he was, you know, he was directly picking a fight, Tolkien, basically, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and Tolkien's idealization of – Empire idealization of, of kind of white Britishness. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, Moorcock was, was intentionally kind of savaging that. So, uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, there's, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of chinks in that armor leading up to, to Martin, even if he's the one who kind of, you know, struck the, the final blow, I think. Well, and Warcock, I mean, wasn't just picking a fight with Tolkien, but was picking a fight with Robert E. Howard, too. I mean, since Elric mm -hmm. is a complete inversion of every characteristic yeah. of Conan. Um, and as far as other non-American authors, I mean, we should mention Steven Erickson. I mean, obviously, he's a he's one of the current top practitioners of, of this form. And then there's uh, Trudy Canavan, who's Australian, um, and she's doing um, she has an epic fantasy series as well. That's, uh, you know, uh, sort of one of the uh, highly regarded ones, um, you know, out there now. Um, I'm sure there's probably plenty of others uh, non-American, although it does seem to be the it does seem to me that the a vast majority of the epic fantasy writers are actually American. Um, not yeah. sure what to make of that. Actually, yeah, I, was, I was talking to uh, Joe Abercrombie about that. Actually, uh, uh, well, a number of us were at a confusion recently, and you know, he was basically like, eh, "There's me, there's Richard K. Morgan, <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that there's just not a lot of Brits writing epic fantasy anymore." And I think, you know, I think that, yeah, uh, the U.S. is totally the inheritor of, of, of Tolkien in that way. Well, do you think maybe even Michael Moorcock was just too successful uh, with New World to just sort of demolishing? Tolkien that, you know, it made it sort of unfashionable for people to follow in his footsteps over there? I think there's a little bit of that, yeah. I think, I mean, um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to say this without sounding, uh, if we if we kind of make the word sophisticated a neutral word rather than a positively valued word, I think there is a way in which the British fantasy reading public is more sophisticated than the American fantasy reading public. By which I don't mean that they're any smarter or that they have better taste, but that they, um, I think, you know, it's a huge generalization, but I, I think that there's a, a kind of self-consciousness about literary quality uh, in British fantasy uh, that's part of the tradition in a way that's less so um, uh, in a kind of more populist American publishing tradition. And, uh, and I think that, yeah, I think... Moorcock kind of struck a blow that, uh, that, you know, um, British writers were sort of, uh, that was pretty convincing for British writers. And I don't think resonated with Americans who, who were very happy to continue in some, uh, manifestations pretty slavishly imitating Tolkien. Uh, I think that's changed since the 80s, you know, but I think that there's, there's definitely that lineage there that's probably got a lot to do with, with why they're not writing tons of this stuff. I also wonder if uh, possibly it has something to do with the fact that England and Europe uh, both have like actual history of sort of this of, of like sort of medieval warfare of that we're sort of used to seeing in epic fantasy novels, you know, sort of swords and armor and stuff like that. Whereas Americans don't actually have that ha actual history. Of course, we've read about it, but maybe that sort of maybe that explains a bit of, of our sort of preoccupation with it, whereas they actually, you know, have a cultural sort of memory of, of that actual, of that actual history yeah. and, and maybe are more interested in the actual history as opposed to the, the fantastical versions of it that we, uh, you know, dream up in epic fantasy. Well, or maybe have a more skeptical eye towards some of it. I think mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I mean, even for me, you know, I, I grew up a pretty working class kid in Detroit and, um, I, you know, I grew up in a leftist household, which was kind of, 
critical of, uh, of, of, you know, class dynamics, it was still also a household where we loved Lord of the Rings, you know, and where we loved this idealization of, of, of kingship. And, uh, uh, I think that that is so purely a fantasy for Americans, so purely a kind of escape. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have Lord anybody hmm. in their Congress, hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, however autocratic these guys may be, they don't have actual noble titles. And uh, and I think that, uh, you know, with a lot of, especially the kind of British intelligentsia, there's a contempt for that, mm-hmm. actually. And that's probably part of it is that they're not going to idealize something that was part of their own history in the same way that we're going to idealize something that, that we're not still living with the history of around us. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, literary quality, and that, that kind of brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is actually, you know, John and I were talking a day or so ago, and, and John was saying he actually finds a lot of uh, epic fantasy written these days hard to read because the language is too sort of middle-class American. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a, a really famous essay written about this by Ursula Le Guin called From Elfland to Poughkeepsie, uh, sort of mocking... Uh, fantasy novels for having characters who think and talk like 20th century Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, I've actually always kind of had mixed feelings about that because I feel like that, that, that I don't really see necessarily any reason why characters who live in a made up world should talk like British people from mm-hmm. a few centuries ago, you know? Right. Um, and I think a lot of it just has to do with my attachment to Roger Zelazny's Chronicles of Amber which has always struck me as the most uh, thrilling way, sort of language for a fantasy novel to be written, which sort of combines, sort of blends 20th century vernacular with, uh, you know, allusions to Edmund Spencer and Shakespeare and all this stuff to to form this very sort of strange melange, which a lot of people can't stand, but it it just, I don't know, there's there's something very uh, uh, engaging about that to me. And even like in uh, in Game of Thrones, you know, there's there's a, a line that really struck me the first time I read it, the first time I read it where uh, Robert and Ned Stark are having a conversation and, and Robert finally says, oh, fuck you, Ned. And you just, you never saw that in Dragonlance, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. I have mixed feelings about it, too. Um, I, I think that, you know, that's that definitely a reaction uh, against the kind of, uh, you know, Tolkien, but then the um, Tolkien's men imitators writing in kind of the uh, you know, quasi medieval English that isn't actually anything like medieval English and isn't anything like natural contemporary speech. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff in 80s fantasy novels was very stiff and, and, and bad. <laughs> uh, but I think that, that the way people curse should reflect the world they're from. It shouldn't sound just like 20th century uh, or 21st century American cursing either. You know, um, and it is definitely something I, I actually went through several drafts of, you know, and, and, and changed the way some of my characters spoke in terms of this diction because I'm trying to kind of also imitate Arabic in a way, being translated into English, uh, but also, you know, trying to have kind of a figure that speaks the Tom colloquial that don't sound totally archaic and, and stilted to a reader. Uh, but, you know, so I had to sit there and think about it. I do. Do they say fuck or do they say screw? Uh, do they say shit or do they say shite? Do they, you know, um, and, uh, and you know, I made some choices. I think Scott Lynch, uh, you know, and, and George Martin both for the most part do it incredibly well. I think they did something new in terms of, you know, in Jordan, people are still saying things like blood and ashes, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and their, their speech often is is not quite colloquial enough at times. Um, it feels like made-up fantasy world speech. You know, both um, both Martin and Lynch, on opposite ends of the spectrum of seriousness, I guess, sort of did something new there. But I think that at their worst, it, it does sound a little too, you know, too much like an R-rated, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. Tarantino movie or something, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know the thing. The thing about the swearing is like you know, like uh, what you're the 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 quote that you actually referenced there, Dave. You know where he says, you know, ah, oh, fuck you, Ned. It's like um, I, I can see why that would stick out to you, uh, not because he uses the word fuck, because I think I think that should be fine, but uh, more like I think the 
like if you probably look at the etymology of how we we come to use the phrase fuck you to mean what right. it does like it probably has there's probably some additional words in there that were traditionally used that we just left off through time like because i mean because really like i mean i would think that in the old days or whatever like you probably would have said like you know you know go fuck your mother or something you know whatever you know right. something exactly. like that where it's like and we're just leaving that out of the modern usage and so that's why maybe saying just fuck you sort of sticks out I, I wish that this was goddamn actually in my book mm. because mm -hmm. I, you know, it's uh, in the early draft of it was just like this goddamn this and this goddamn that, and then I was like, okay, I can I can make this sound more like a slightly antiquated, more theistic society if I say damned by God instead of goddamned. And so mm -hmm. now this book is full of people calling this this damned by God cart, this damned by God Taylor, mm -hmm. um, because. It's still a swear word, but it, 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 there's, there's a little slight layer of kind of remove between the language a reader themselves would use. And, uh, it's hard, it's hard to learn to walk, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that actually has tripped me up in the past, uh, for epic fantasy, and Martin is actually guilty of this, although I forgive him, uh, but, you know, using like real world names like Robert and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like, and, and Jamie and, and, you know, all the other real names that are in there. And, and it's, and it's especially right. odd because in Martin, because, because he mixes it with, with the fantasy names. Like, you know, there's names like Tyrion and, uh, and, and other, yeah. and other things like that. And then, and yet, you know, side by side with Robert. And, and it's like that, that right. sort of trips me up. And I know like, uh, Terry Goodkind did that as well. And, um, and I'm sure other right. authors have, but yeah, I always kind of wondered like why use those real world names when you could just make up, you know, fantasy names to have that sort of, sort of feel more consistent with your fantasy milieu. Uh, I, you, you threw me for a loop by bringing up good kind who hasn't come up yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, we'll, we'll leave that to the side for now. Yeah. I, in, in, uh, in, in Martin, I think it's, uh, he, that's one thing that I totally bit from <laughs> when I wrote was that he, there is Robert, and there's one or two others that are just a straight-up, you know, whiffed from actual uh, Earth names. But, you know, more often he does something like Eddard, and this is something mm. that Jordan did too, you know. So it's not Edward, or it could be Patrick, but it's P-A-T-R-E-K. And uh, um, some of those names were uh, were actually it, – it's sort of like looking at Earth in a, in a sideways, you know, mm. out of the corner of your eye or something like that. You know, there's a great scene in The Wheel of Time where, um, in one of the books, where basically when the characters step through a, um, a, a, some kind of weird alternate universe portal thing, it's this weird doorway magical item that they find. You step through and you get glimpses of other worlds. And, uh, one of the characters does that. And, uh, you know, the characters, some of the main characters, uh, are named like Matt, M-A-T, which mm -hmm. stands for Matrim. And uh, pairing, which is P-E-R-R-I-N, and I may be misremembering which which names get translated to Earth names. But anyway, one of these characters steps through this doorway, and he gets glimpses of other worlds. And in one of the other worlds, he says, "Matt M-A-T was known as Matthew, and mm. Perrin was called Peter." And so it's this weird. Suddenly, the mirror is taken away, and you're like, "Oh, this name was inspiring this name, and this name was inspiring that name," and that's that's the kind of fancy name that I love where it sounds like a completely made up name, but it's not an earth name either, but it's, mm -hmm. it's what an earth name would be like if it was in this world. Well, yeah, the whole issue of language in a secondary fantasy is a really just weird issue because you have to sort of, I think you have to sort of regard it as some sort of a translation, you know, that mm -hmm. it's a completely alien world. So it would all just be incredibly strange names to us. And the author has done you the courtesy of, you know, translating them somehow into something that kind of gives you the flavor of what they actually were, but isn't so weird that you can't remember them or know how to pronounce them or, or anything mm -hmm. like that. Well, and you can get, you know, writers get into fights over this all the time, like which words with their real world reference throw you out of the thing, because every word in English refers to something, you know, can you talk about vandalism, right? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. is that referring to the, the real world earth vandals? You probably aren't going to say a good Samaritan, you're not going to call somebody a Goliath, right? Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of other biblical words that, that might trickle into your language that we don't even think of as biblical words, you know? So Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, yeah. I mean, I know um, I actually one of the one of the other sort of British epic fantasists that we haven't mentioned is uh, David Gemmell, I mean, who who died uh, mm -hmm. fairly, you know, within the past couple of years. But um, 
you know, so with David Gemmel, I know he actually used, uh, he often used language that I had heard people criticize, like saying, he, he would say like fire a bow or something. And I guess like fire, to, to say fire a bow like that is not actually period appropriate or whatever for a sort of pseudo medieval language. Uh, it's like fire came along with firearms or something as opposed to actual shooting a bow. Well, I think one of the most interesting ways to use language is the way that Gene Wolfe does in, in Book of the New Sun, where uh, for any sort of made up thing, he takes a real word, but it's a real word that's so obscure that no one's ever heard of it before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but, but anything, you know, any unfamiliar word in that book, if you look it up, you might have to get, you know, a really, really big dictionary um, for, the, for it to include the word, but they're all real words. And so it, it lends this a sort of alienness to the language, but you're actually all learning <laughs> real words uh, at the same time. Um, but that actually, it's sort of, you know, when I think about my favorite, all my favorite epic fantasies, it seems like they're all sort of on the same kind of branch of a family tree. Uh, you know, John just did this Barzoom book, and so I went back and read uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, John Carter, you know, Princess of Mars. And I was like, wow, this really reminds me of Zelazny's Amber, uh, particularly, the, the, you know, the main character is this immortal character who doesn't remember his past, and he's the best swordsman ever, and, and all this stuff like that. And it really reminds me of Gene Wolfe's book of the new sun. And when I think about that, I think about, well, wait, like, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs leads to Jack Vance. Jack Vance leads to Gene Wolfe. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs leads to Roger Zelazny. And then Game of Thrones is kind of like Vance meets Zelazny. Um, and then the myth books are sort of like Fawford and the Great Mouser, but sort of more comedic. And then Scott Lynch is sort of, you know, also on the sort of Fawford and the Great Mouser uh, Fritz Leiber branch. So it's kind of like, you know, it's I, I can identify this particular branch that all my favorite fruit hangs on, you know. Mm -hmm. So why don't you, just to wrap things up, Saladin, why don't you, I mean, you've mentioned your book a little bit, but why don't you just sort of lay it out for us, uh, what's it about and uh, how'd you come to write it, stuff like that? Uh, well, uh, the title is Throne of the Crescent Moon. It's uh, uh, just come out from Daw Books, uh, February 7th. Uh, and uh, the uh, the tagline is that it's a sort of a epic fantasy inspired by the by the Arabian Nights. And while there's truth to that, uh, after our discussion here, you know, I definitely emphasize that it's sort of something between sword and sorcery and epic fantasy. Um, it's, uh, it's got some noirish elements to it, as sword and sorcery does, uh, and it's uh, it's about heroes who are not necessarily uh, Royalty or, or even nobility. Um, uh, and it's, it's a, where it came from is essentially kind of, uh, uh, my own mix here. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, uh, was born in the States, uh, but grew up in an Arab immigrant community, both kind of hearing, uh, certain kind of myths and legends and stuff, but more to the point, uh, just hearing the sounds of Arabic around me, the smells, uh, the foods. Um, and, uh, uh, my father really reinforcing, uh, uh, interest in my heritage always growing up. Uh, and the other thing that he really reinforced is that he was a huge fantasy fan. And so since I was a little kid, I was, you know, hunched over Dungeons and Dragons books and comic books and, uh, and epic fantasy novels. And so, uh, this novel is essentially kind of, uh, those worlds meeting. It's, uh, uh, centers around a small band of characters in a city that's sort of like Lankmar, uh, mashed up with, uh, with medieval Baghdad. Yeah, it's, it's both an adventure fantasy with, uh, the things you'd expect from an adventure fantasy, you know, monsters, sword fights, magic, uh, and also, uh, I hope about some kind of larger things. There's some stuff about politics in there. There's some stuff about religion in there. There's some, some stuff that, uh, you know, one can look at sideways and think about some things in our world today in terms of both our own country, the Middle East. Uh, but, uh, but at the core, you know, none of that's, uh, hitting people over the head too much. Uh, you know, at the core, it's an adventure story. Uh, the deal I have with Dawes for a three book series and, uh, the later books will definitely move more towards large scale epic fantasy. Um, it's a, sort of analog uh, of the Crusades happening uh, in the later books. I think I saw on Twitter, like, uh, Warren Ellis uh, liked your book. 
<laughs> I, uh, I I did uh, I did get a little shout out from Warren Ellis, and uh, uh, it was especially cool because he said I don't generally like fantasy, <laughs> but uh, but I I fancy the new Solid Economic book. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I got to show it to my dad, who's a huge Trans Metropolitan fan, so that was pretty cool. All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Saladin, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me very much. And thanks to Robin Hobb for joining us on the show. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.